You may find it uh, helpful to have your Bibles open as we look together at the passage set for tonight. It's on page 1050 in the Church Bibles and it's Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. While you're finding it, and before we approach it more closely to hear what the Lord has to say to us tonight, forgive me if I just lapse uh, into teacher mode for a few moments uh, to sketch in a little bit of the background to the parable um, so that I think this will help us in our understanding of it. So if you could just uh, bear with me for a moment or two as we look at one or two of the issues which might be helpful for us to know. The first thing you need to know is that most of this story, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, is not original to Jesus. It had been told by many people, uh, both first in Egypt and then in Palestine, up until, up until his um, arrival on the scene, and it's a story which most of his hearers would have heard. Or at any rate, it's a story much of which they would have heard. And Jesus, being a superb teacher, uh, was a subversive teacher. He would have everybody sitting back thinking they knew it all, and then suddenly in comes the punchline, which completely changes the emphasis of the story. And when they go home that night, it was in their memories, and then suddenly it exploded in its significance. I only hope that something of that might happen to you all tonight. The second thing is that it is a parable and not a textbook of theology. We should not turn to it to discover the geography of heaven or the temperature of hell. These are incidental details in the story and we shouldn't allow ourselves to put too much emphasis on them. If we put this, look at the story on that level, we'll have missed the point. And the parable certainly doesn't imply that all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. If uh, we say that, again, we've missed the point. That point, of course, was made um, by many people down history, notably by many mill owners in the 19th century who thought and taught that um, they were having a good time and their workers were working for a pittance in awful conditions, but never mind, one day it would all be reversed and those worthy workers would get the reward they deserved in heaven. It's the same sort of argument that the slave owners used when William Wilberforce was an MP who became a Christian. Um, and um, as he became a Christian, he met John Newton, the great previous slave captain, uh, who persuaded him, fortunately in my view, not to be ordained, but to go on being an MP and to change the course of history, which he gave his life doing. But the arguments that he had to face were the sort of arguments used by the mill owners to whom I've just referred. And chillingly, you hear those arguments again as you look at some of the reasons why people in the G8 summits are reluctant to make it possible for the developing world to have a chance 
of exercising free trade. The same sort of arguments run all through. Lastly, I mean in my introduction, lastly, <coughs> dream on. <laughs> it's part of Luke's Gospel. And uh, one of Luke's special interests is the place of the poor in the teaching of, G of the kingdom. Jesus came, Luke says, right at the outset of uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, according to Luke, he came to preach good news to the poor, the good news of the kingdom of God. And in this passage that we are looking at tonight, chapter 16, it is part of a massive passage from chapter 14 through to chapter 19, which is... Um, <coughs> giving teaching about that kingdom and in the passage that we are looking at from chapter 14 verse uh, sorry chapter 16 verse 14 through to the beginning of chapter 17 it is all addressed to the Pharisees now all these things are relevant and I just ask you to bear them in your mind sorry to be rather boring at the start but it might just be helpful to bear those three things in mind it's not an original story it is a parable and it's in Luke My first point. <laughs> but let's look first at the story which was familiar to Jesus' hearers. And that takes us from 19, verse 19 to verse 26. There are two characters in the story, well known, the rich man and Lazarus. I wonder when you last met Lazarus. Maybe uh, when you were in the city centre maybe late at night, and there he was lying on newspapers huddled under an old coat in a shop doorway. Or as you passed the guy selling um, Big Issue and wondered whether you should buy a copy or not. Or as you read that awful passage in the papers last week about Las Vegas, where seven people were taken to court, threatened with two years' imprisonment for feeding the homeless in one of the city's parks. It's not nice to have homeless in the parks, they said. Janet and I, down our married life, have come across the homeless in all sorts of ways. <clears throat> when we'd just been married, we were full of rather naive enthusiasm, and uh, I was a curate in a parish in Eastbourne on the Costa Geriatrica. And one of the things which um, we did find was that during the summer at least there were large numbers of gentlemen of the road who came into that town and um, sought to scrape some sort of living there and I was coming back from church late one night midweek mid night and uh, there was one of these guys who I'd seen before several times lying on a, on a bench just outside the church door and so foolishly I think but from the right motives I said, you don't want to lie there. Come and have our spare room. <laughs> uh, which you shouldn't really do, I know, but we did. And um, he, he stayed most of the night and slipped out when we weren't looking. And um, we were relieved to find that nothing else had gone much with him. Mind you, I was a, a new curate on £30 a month. And the only valuable thing was a piano, which was on the first floor. So I think we're all right. <laughs> <clears throat> I suppose if you go abroad, though, all that sort of pales into insignificance. And when we were in India, in Delhi, we shall never forget 
the awfulness of the poverty which hit us every time we went outside our guest house in a little bus shelter, like the bus shelter at the bottom of the road. There was a mother with her three children all under five, and that was home. At night, down the dual carriageway, head to toe, were rows and rows and rows of people sleeping rough. And there was the boy without legs in the shopping centre, about ten years old, bouncing around on one hand and holding out the other for rupees. Of course, sometimes you aren't uh, sure who is really genuine and who is not. Um, When we were in Bedford, we had a boarding house for 60 teenagers, which was an interesting time. And uh, we were just on the road, one of the roads coming out of the centre of the town, and we had a number of these gentlemen who called to ask for money. We never gave them money, but we did try to give them something to eat and uh, some friendship and tried to help them on their way in whichever way we could. And uh, one night we had a chap on the door who, it was a dark winter's night, and Janet went to the door and there was this character with um, a black coat which went right down to his feet. And looking very deeply suspicious with one, a broad-brimmed hat which pulled right down. And Janet was really quite frightened, but as you do, you say, can I help you? <laughs> And it turned out he was the father of one of the boys in the house. (laughs) And he'd come to ask how he was getting on. And his wife was just behind him and they came and sat on my settee. And I told them that their son was not doing very well at all. He was basically very lazy. And he was probably going to fail all his O-levels and he wasn't doing any work. And um, the father said, this sounds very much like something I've heard before my report when I was 16. And uh, the father's name was Johnny Dankworth, and with Cleo Lane, his wife, and they agreed that there was not much that could be done and drove off in their Rolls Royce to pick up their various knighthoods and things. Um, And there we are. So you've got to be careful before you label people as Lazarus or not. The Lazarus in the story, though, to be serious, Lazarus, the word means, God is my helper. Uh, He lives on the garbage, dumped at his feet. He's been put round the back door where no one can see him. Nobody pays attention to him. If he wasn't there, nobody would notice. He had no significance to those around him. He had no security. And if people wanted to dump him somewhere else, they did. And even what health he had is threatened by the disease-ridden dogs who licked his open sores. I just wonder, that name, Lazarus, God is my helper. I just wonder, a little bit fanciful perhaps, but I just wonder if that led him to some sort of security. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They... They will, have, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, was very different. The very way that Jesus describes him sets the warning bells ringing. Have you ever heard somebody be described just as he was very rich? He dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. There's nothing wrong with being rich, of course. 
But is being rich the only thing Jesus says about him? Imagine an obituary which just said he was rich. This was his whole life. He was the sort of man who probably enjoyed his status. He defined himself probably by what he possessed. He's one of the Tesco Ergo Sum Brigades. I shop, therefore I exist. He defines himself by what he owns. He sits on the board of the local charities. He signs ostentatious checks for good causes with his gold-plated pen. But he can't bear to see Lazarus at his front door. So he had him moved around to the back. The the rich man's life was unreal. It, It seemed secure, but it was really escapist. On the outside, all was good. But as we see when he arrived at his destination, it was very seriously lacking. He had tried to define himself, who he was, by what he did, by what he possessed, by the company he kept, by the house he lived in, by the carriage he travelled in. But in terms of eternity, he was totally insecure and he was lost. It wasn't that he lived a life of obvious sinning in the traditional sense, but he did live a life, live a life which was only for himself. And almost certainly, he was a Pharisee. Almost certainly, he had this, what we call this secular, sacred divide. He lived his life in compartments. He did many good things, but he didn't really see that his religion had anything to do with most of his life. It's a bit like when I came out just now, I passed the kitchen table and there on the kitchen table, looking very inviting, was a gorgeous bunch of bananas. And down our garden, there's a rather sad-looking apple tree, which I go and look at morosely to see if there's anything there, and there usually isn't. It's rather like as if I took that bunch of bananas and took it down the garden and tied it on the tree and said, ah, new life, we now have a banana tree. This guy's a bit like that. He is pretending to be something which he is not. I wonder how you define yourself if you ask that basic question, who am I? I've had to face this question quite a few times recently. I faced it when I retired. You know, people come up and don't know you and say, who are you, what do you do? Well, I've retired. (laughs) Not a lot. And some of you know that for five months at the beginning of this year, I was flat on my back. I could scarcely move with, with some spinal problems, which I won't go into. But it was very difficult to stand. It was agony to walk. And even sitting, uh, I could only do for a short time. So I lay down most of the day. I lay down on our sofa and I looked out of the window and I studied the, the, uh, the view, um, which largely consisted of a row of horse chestnut trees at the bottom of the garden. And I watched the leaves fall off and I watched the bareness of the, tr- of the branches. And then in the spring I saw the buds beginning again. I was there quite some time, you understand. (laughs) And I was there and I was wondering what life was really about. 
If this was all I was going to be able to do, what's the purpose of it all? Who am I? I can't do anything. I felt completely helpless. And in that state, I was able to do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a certain amount of praying. And I read the book of Job and I found in the book of Job that here was an angry man who was railing against God because he didn't understand why he was where he was and in the state he was in. But at the end of the book, you get this marvellous line of chapters of God showing to Job his awful sovereignty, his power. And at the end, in the last couple of chapters, John, uh, Job uh, says, um, I repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And the thing he was saying before was rather like me on my back, which was, uh, I don't understand what life is about. I can't do anything. And at the end of the book he's saying, now I see. I have seen you with my eyes. I understand. And I understand that even though you are sovereign and uh, your majesty is immeasurable, I am someone that you love and care for. And that came to me as something very significant over those months. I realized that I was loved with an everlasting love, which would never go away. I was loved by one who said, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And I learned again something I had known all my life, but I learned in a new way and in a way which got right into my heart that it's not what you do that matters. It's who you are that matters. The story goes on. The rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to Abraham's bosom. We're not told where that is, but remember my warnings earlier on. And the awful thing about hell for this rich man, Hades, that place where God is not, whatever else it means in this verse, that's what it means. He could see what the situation was. He could see the truths that he'd never really bothered about all his life and he now could do nothing about it. And that is hell. He hasn't really changed. He feels thirsty, so what does he do? Oh, could, Abraham, could you send Abraham, uh, could you send Lazarus down with a drink of water? That's how he saw Lazarus still, as a lackey. And then send a message to my five brothers, he says. Lazarus can pop down and sort it out. But please remember, it's not a theology of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. So there's your, your story which was familiar to the people to whom Jesus first told it. 
A story of a rich man and a poor man, a rich man and a beggar, whose roles in laughter life were reversed. And Jesus told the story, and of course, it's got its own meaning. And I've tried to say what it means to me. But now we move on. For the rest of the story, the rest of the parable, we go from verses 27 to, uh, to 31, to the end of the chapter. In the stories which had been circulating in the time of Jesus, the guy who died often asked for messages to be sent to those still alive. But here Jesus puts into the mouth of, Jesus, of Abraham a refusal. This is something completely different from what they've heard before. There's no point, says Abraham, in going back. And I think if I had to give this story a title, I'd call it the parable of the five brothers, because that's really who Jesus is talking about. We who are the five brothers, here on earth now, still with a chance. And he says, verse 29, um, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. Moses and the prophets, code for the Old Testament, the books of the law, the books of the prophets. And everything they need to know is there. So what's wrong with the five brothers? Remember, Jesus is talking primarily to the Pharisees. They had the truth. They believed. They knew it all. All they had to do was to keep the law down to the last miserable detail. They knew the words of the Old Testament inside out, and they thought that was it. They didn't see that the words on the page were to reach into every corner of their lives and revolutionize them. They had a mechanical way of interpreting the scriptures. They just followed the teachings they'd always heard. It was all there in the box. There were right answers and there were wrong answers. And they knew it all. But Jesus, you see, in his teaching about the Old Testament, never contradicted it. But he did give it a whole new dimension. He said in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the, Son of, uh, Sermon on the Mount, that I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them, I have come to complete them, I have come to show you how they should be kept. Six times in chapter 5 of Matthew, he started by saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Just two examples. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he who looks on a woman lustfully has already, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus implies that's just as wrong. It's not just the outward act. It's the attitude of the heart. Here's another one. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you remember our first reading tonight from Jeremiah? The old covenant, the old way of keeping the letter, trying to keep the letter of the law, is doomed, Jeremiah says in verse 30, 33 of chapter 31. This is the covenant, though, he says, that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts 
a new covenant is coming. I will be their God. They will be my people. There's a new way of keeping the law of God. So what was wrong with the rich man? He might have done the right things in his charitable activities and be a respected member of the community. His external behavior might have seemed admirable, but his heart was wrong. Even in hell, he thought Lazarus was just his lackey, and the only people who mattered were close members of his own family. It was pointless sending messages to his five brothers. They would behave in the same way. So how about us? We're the five brothers, yes? Our lives seem, from outside, may seem pretty good. We may do many laudable things for other people. But what about our motives down there in the secret parts of our heart? What about our motives when we have to make decisions which nobody else will ever know? Even we might not understand our deepest thoughts and motives, but God does. And trying to put on good works and good behaviour and talk the language of Zion and pray the right sort of prayer, whatever it is, is worthless in God's sight unless the law is written on our hearts, as Jeremiah said. In the new covenant, it's not something that you put on from the outside. It's not just a code of behaviour to follow. It's a complete change of heart. It's not what we do. It's who we are. Paul picked up this idea in his letter to his Corinthian friends, 2 Corinthians 3, when he said, comparing the law of Moses on tablets of stone brought down the mountain with a new covenant brought by Jesus, your very lives are a letter that anyone can read just by looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives. Not written out with ink on paper, with pages and pages of legal footnotes, killing the spirit. It's written with spirit on spirit, his life on our lives. Or as the dear old authorised version put it in more economic but memorable words, it is written on the fleshy tables, the tablets of the heart. The real punchline of Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, his unique words with their heavy irony, are kept to the very last sentence of this chapter. The rich man has just said in verse 30, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Do you see what a solemn and dreadful moment it is in this parable? We've seen that our eternal destiny depends on not what we do, but on who we are. It's now we have to choose before it's too late and the great gulf is fixed so that those who want to cross from one side to the other cannot. The new covenant we've seen is not a matter of external behaviour, although that's important. But it's all to do with our heart. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. I wonder if there's someone here tonight who sees in Christians they know attitudes and behaviours they recognise as good. They admire them. There is something attractive in a life lived wholeheartedly for Christ. 
they think, I'd like to be like that. And they go out into the garden, metaphorically speaking, and tie the bananas on the apple tree. That's what the rich man thought he, he did. He thought he had to follow the rules. It's going by the old covenant, living by external rules, rather than a radical change of heart. So that as you live in Christ and he lives in you, your whole being, your heart and soul and strength and mind is transformed into the image of God's Son. Paul likened the true Christian to a temple of God's Holy Spirit. God, through his Spirit, lives in us. And for him to do that, it's like getting out of the driving seat of our lives and handing the keys to him and say, do with me as you will. Next week, our son Jeremy and his wife and three young children go to Heathrow and hope to board a plane for Kenya, where he's taking up a new teaching job at St. Andrew's School in Turi. He's got the tickets. They say, Heathrow to Nairobi. They know the time of the flight. They know which terminal to go to. On Wednesday week, they'll go to Heathrow to fly to Nairobi. They will believe that the pilot knows the way. They believe that the strict security measures now in force will ensure that they don't all blow up on the way. They believe that. They've looked at the evidence. They've made their decision. But it's only when they've gone through that departure gate and down the tunnel and onto the plane and taxiing for takeoff beyond the point of no return that when they say, we believe this plane will get us to Nairobi, that belief becomes commitment. It's not belief about anymore. It's belief in. Belief or trust in Jesus doesn't mean about. It doesn't mean believing about. It doesn't mean believing a set of facts, although it involves that. It means trusting in, putting your confidence in. Is our belief just belief about? Is it just head knowledge? Or is it confidence in the risen Jesus who died for us, who loves us so much that he wants to live in us through his spirit and transform our motives and our thinking and our behaviour and the whole of our life? Well, there may be those here who long ago gave your life to Christ, but whose day by day walk with him has faltered and flickered and become mechanical and so much to do with keeping the rules and going through the motions. For all of us, those who on their journey to faith have not reached yet a point of commitment, and also for those of us who for long have been on the life of faith, we're all the five brothers who are being called to bring our hearts and lives to Christ again or for the first time, asking his forgiveness for failing him so often, for longing for his spirit never to stop drawing us nearer to him as we become more like him. And then there's that final twist in the story resounding in our ears even if someone should rise from the dead. We know as Christians that someone has risen from the dead. <coughs> Jesus has. 
He has conquered all the powers of evil which seek to pull us down. His resurrection marks the beginning of the new kingdom he came to bring. Life can never be the same again for those who link their lives with his. (coughs) He calls us to follow him. He calls us to be consecrated to him. To bring to him gladly and unreservedly all that we have and all that we are so that he can fill us with himself that all may know that I am his and he is mine. Let's pray. (coughs) Maybe the Lord has been speaking to you tonight. Maybe for a long time you've thought that being a Christian was something that you do and that it wasn't a life shared with Jesus. A life which comes from forgiveness and restoration and filling with his spirit. Or maybe there are those here tonight who uh, long ago made that step of faith but whose faith has gone cold. Lord, wherever we are on the journey of faith, help us always to recognize that it is as we know you better and love you more, as we open ourselves to you more and more deeply, as you come more intensely into every part of our lives so that there is nothing that we think or say or do that is not consecrated. So we pray that we may always be open to you, always deeper, always wanting to get to know you more, always wanting to be more effective for you as your life shines out through us. Lord, help us in this, for Jesus' sake. Amen.